Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. We will be continuing our sermon series called The Cross-Shaped Life, and we'll be looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Before we get there, let me just once again remind you about the Christmas offering. Some of you may not know about that yet. If you're new with us, we're, we're trying to raise some money, $30,000 to purchase an ultrasound machine for a crisis pregnancy center that we partner with uh, just down the road on Colonial. And so uh, we're, we're asking for everybody to participate in any way that you can, uh, definitely through prayer and financially if you can, over, over and above your normal giving. We're looking to uh, see everybody pitch in so we can buy this uh, machine for them and that we'll be able to serve women and unborn children and families in East Orlando in an amazing way by buying this ultrasound machine for them. And uh, next week, like I said earlier, is the big week where we'll bring everything forward. So I just wanted to put in one more plug for that. If you've already chosen to give, thank you. If you're still on the fence, still trying to decide, I say jump in, do it. Just uh, take a step of faith and give something so we can buy this thing for them. That will be really amazing. Let's turn to God's word. This is uh, Mark 2, 1 through 12. Hear now God's holy and true word. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there were there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves and said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we continue to celebrate the birth of our Lord Jesus, uh, we pray now that you would help us to see his glory in this text. Help us to see your grace to us through him in this passage. Use this time now to transform us and to equip us to proclaim and demonstrate the gospel to our neighbors and to the nations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 2 begins a uh, transition. It's pretty interesting. In chapter 1, we saw Jesus basically battling against enemies of the uh, our body and enemies of our soul. He was going head-to-head with demons and even the devil, and he was also uh, dealing with physical ailments and diseases. And so there's that, that battle going on that he's here to make things right physically and spiritually. And then now in chapter 2, what happens is uh, things change and we take a little different direction, and he begins to deal with some confrontations with religious leaders. 
the very people that are supposed to help us be able to make sense between the physical and spiritual realities of life. And so he's going to, we're going to see him now, and over the next five weeks, he's going to have these confrontations where these religious leaders criticize him, question him, and it'll be very interesting to see his maneuvers and see what he does to display the truth. Now, this first confrontation that we see is about forgiveness. And if there's one thing that uh, we just, we, we have to have right, we want to know what's right, it's, it's about forgiveness. And so for religious leaders to be confusing people about how we're forgiven or why we're forgiven, that is obviously a terrible thing. And that's why this first thing that Jesus is going to uh, deal with here is forgiveness. And I just, I just am so thankful for this passage. And one of the reasons is because as a pastor, I hear people uh, on pretty regular occasion talk about forgiveness. Uh, sometimes they say they have trouble forgiving certain people. I feel like I have trouble forgiving certain people sometimes. But other times, and maybe more commonly, I hear people say, I don't think I'll ever be able to forgive myself. And I felt that way too. And so this is a powerful passage for those of us who, who struggle with forgiving even ourselves. And so that's what we're going to talk about, how the cross-shaped life today, the cross-shaped life is marked by faith and forgiveness and seeing how these things are inseparable. Faith and forgiveness. If we have faith, we have forgiveness. And so we're going to take a look at three things today. I want to talk about a faith you can see and then the authority to forgive. And lastly, the glory of God. Faith, authority, and glory. So keep your Bibles open. We're going to go right through this text here. Let's look at verses 1 through 5 and see how true faith in Christ is made visible by our actions. True faith in Christ is made visible by our actions actions. So let's starting in verse one, we're just going to move right through here. It says, and when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. What a great image. Here we have Jesus. He's in this house and he's teaching. He's preaching. Uh, We know that we've seen so far. He keeps going back and forth between proclaiming the gospel with his words and demonstrating the gospel with his deeds. He's proclaiming and demonstrating, proclaiming and demonstrating. Now he's back to proclaiming and the people just can't get enough. They're crowded around. There's no more room. It's totally packed shoulder to shoulder. Even at the door, people are falling out the door so they can hear Jesus teach because of his authority and because of who he is. Just amazing. Amazing. So, so this is happening in this, in this, uh, in the first century here. It's, you know, total fire hazard going on here, totally packed out. And it says, verse three, they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Now, some of the commentators think these four men might have been the disciples. Uh, others think it was other people. But either way, the main things we want to see here is that they were carrying to Jesus a man who was paralyzed, meaning he couldn't move his arms, couldn't move his legs. Okay, Common understanding of what it means to be paralyzed. And so verse 4, And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And this is like amazing. If you think about this, if we can kind of transport ourselves back into this time and imagine this room, it's probably not that big. It's a house. And back then, the houses would have roofs that were flat. 
and they would be made with uh, branches and mud and thatch, so you could actually get through them. This is very possible. In fact, the, um, they would have stairways on the sides of their houses because people used to do all sorts of things up on their roofs. Sometimes they would work up there. Sometimes they would sleep up there. Don't Try this at home. But anyway, that's this part of the way that the first century people in this area of the world, they operated. They had that nature of their roof. And so these guys climb up the stairs and they're carrying this man on his bed. And then uh, they're, they're opening up the roof. They're literally digging down, digging a hole into this roof. And I, I mean, I just kind of if you can just imagine yourself being in that room and you're standing there watching this man preach and he's saying things like you've never heard. And it's just changing your life. And all of a sudden, you know, a little rock falls and hits you or something or there's some dust falling, maybe even on Jesus. I just would have loved to see how he responded to this. And so all the stuff starts coming down and then all of a sudden something rips open and there's sunlight pouring through and there's people up there. And you're just I mean, there's no way you would miss this. It's not like somebody was standing there listening to Jesus and somebody had to say, hey, are you watching this? You know, that's not what happened. This suddenly everybody's eyes were on this event. Everybody was watching these men dig through. And as the dust and dirt and roof fell down, what was absolutely clear was the determination of these men. They were going to stop at nothing to get their friend to Jesus. They could see it. You could see it. And that's what Jesus saw, not necessarily their determination, but their faith. Look at verse 5. So given what's going on, it says, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic son, Your sins are forgiven. He saw their faith. How did he see their faith? By seeing their actions. This word, this word faith, it doesn't just mean um, to agree intellectually. It means to trust. It means to believe. It means to live according to something. It means absolute trust. And they, and that's, that's what they're displaying here. This is the first time we see the word faith in Mark's gospel. And what's so beautiful is it gets inseparably linked to forgiveness. So Jesus is looking at them and how does he see their faith? He sees their actions when he's watching and when they're watching this hole being ripped open in the roof. What they're watching is the faith of these men in action. True faith is visible through action. You know, we are uh, mourning the loss of Nelson Mandela right now. He died this week and was such a great man and was uh, if anybody knows anything about Nelson Mandela, what we know is he was absolutely determined to end apartheid in South Africa, and he was going to stop at nothing to do it. In fact, this is a quote from one of his speeches before he went to prison, and it says this, I have fought against white domination, I have fought against black domination, I have cherished the ideal of a democratic and free society in which all persons live together in harmony and with equal opportunities. It is an ideal which I hope to live for, and to achieve, but if need be, it is an ideal for which I am prepared to die. Now, nobody would deny that was true about him because you could see it. You could see in his life this determination to do this. And it's, it shows that he really believed that. He really believed that he needed to fight to end apartheid. And now you have the same type of thing happening here. These guys trust Jesus. They believe that this man needs to be before Jesus, that they need to be before Jesus as well. And so they take action. Their faith is visible. I see this and I ask myself, is my faith visible? Do people see my faith? 
And, you know, the, uh, the reality is this is not a New Testament thing. All through the Bible, God wants, we see God wants the nations, He wants the people of the world to see our faith through our actions. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses talks about how important it is that the people of God obey God's law so that the nations will see and see the wisdom of God and see that God is with us and for us and loves us. It is absolutely something that runs through the entire uh, thread of Scripture, this idea that Jesus wants people to see our faith in action. James addresses this in James chapter 2. We know that. He talks about our faith apart from works being dead. Our faith, if it's real, it will cause us to take action. Uh, in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this amazing thing, which, which shows, just like this passage, uh, he wants people to see our faith through our actions. In Matthew 5, 16, Jesus says, Let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You know what makes me so excited about this is here we see Jesus using the visibility of these men's faith to teach a crowd about the inseparable nature of faith and forgiveness. So he takes advantage of this opportunity. That's why he doesn't heal him right away. He goes straight to forgiveness. Isn't that amazing? He goes straight to forgiveness with this man because he had seen their faith and he knew that everybody else had been watching this as well. And so he goes first to telling him that his sins are forgiven. He's able uh, to use, therefore, our acts of faith to draw people to himself for forgiveness that makes our living by faith missional in and of itself. Isn't that amazing that, that if we, as we seek to live by faith, as people see our faith in Christ, Jesus uses those opportunities to draw people to himself and show them this inseparable connection between true faith and total forgiveness. Anyone who has true faith has total forgiveness. That's the message of the gospel. So he forgives this man. And this is a call to you and me. It's a call to you and me to demonstrate our faith, to show our faith, to live in ways that people see that we believe in Jesus. Now, you may have heard this passage preached with this is teaching you should bring your friends to church, even if you have to dig a hole in the roof. You may have heard that before. Listen, these guys are not the hero in this story. Jesus is the hero in this story. And let's talk about that. Let's talk about his authority to forgive. Look at verses 6 through 11. And this is key. Ready? Here's what we see here. Jesus is the only one with authority regarding the forgiveness of sins. Period. This is big. Something as we are following Christ, as we are seeking to live this cross-shaped life that he calls us to, realizing that he is the only one with authority regarding forgiveness of sins is huge. Starting in verse 6. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. We've seen the scribes before. These are the guys who are going to be giving Jesus trouble throughout the rest of uh, the gospel of Mark. They're the experts in the law. They're always critical of what Jesus is saying, trying to catch him off guard, trying to see if he has said something wrong. So they're questioning in their hearts. And uh, it says, here's what their question is. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming, they thought. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, blasphemy, blasphemy is uh, defaming God's name. It is uh, saying things that aren't true about God or slandering God. And it's uh, uh, an offense punishable by death. In fact, 
In the end, when Jesus does go to the cross to die, he's sentenced to death ultimately because of blasphemy on their, in their minds. They believe he's blaspheming because he's speaking as only God can speak. And so right here as this is happening, as Tim Keller says about this passage, the, the shadow of the cross now permanently uh, looms over Jesus, the rest of Jesus' ministry here. And so uh, he, they're, they're, they're thinking he's blaspheming. It's a, it's a crime punishable by death. And the reality is if he was blaspheming, it was back then a punishable, uh, an offense punishable by death. We see that all through the Old Testament. And we see that only God can forgive. There's multiple places where we could draw from to see that only God can forgive because God is the only true moral law giver. And so the first century Jews uh, and the, the scribes at this moment Number one, you know, when they were expecting the Messiah to come, they had misinterpreted things and did not understand that the Messiah would be a human being, a human being who's also fully God, but they didn't expect him to be a human being. And then the other thing they didn't, they weren't expecting is that he would forgive sins. And therefore, uh, they get pretty upset here because of what's happening here. So, so let's look um, and see what happens here next. Uh, verse 8, And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit, that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. Now, what he's doing here, interestingly, is using logic. I didn't know this term before, but I learned it. Now you can too. There's a Latin phrase, a fortiori. It means that with greater reason. So there's certain arguments that basically what you do is you use something and reasonably it makes sense that if, a, if one thing is true, then a lesser thing is true. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's saying it, it was, it's obviously going to be harder for me to say to this man, get up and take your bed and walk because it's verifiable whether or not he has the authority to say that. If he says that and the man just lies there, it's not like Jesus could have said, well, I really can heal people. You know, there's, there's nothing he would have been able to do. It's easy what we're seeing here. It would be easier for someone to say your sins are forgiven because how do you verify that? How do you know? And so that's what Jesus is doing here. He's using this argument to show now that if he's able to do the hard thing of healing a man who's been paralyzed for who know how long, then of course, then what he would say about forgiving sins must be true as well. That's his argument here. And so look at verse 10. He says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Now, Jesus calls himself here the Son of Man. It's one of his favorite ways to refer to himself. We see it here and a little later in chapter 2. And then we don't see it again until chapter 8. And we see it several times from chapter 8 to the end. And every time when we see him refer to himself as the Son of Man in chapter 8 and following, he's also referring to his suffering and death on the cross. And so we'll see that more and more once we get later on in our series. But he's referring to himself as the Son of Man. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a phrase from the Old Testament. It's pointing to him as our Savior. And then the authority part. Look at, look at how he addresses them. He's, he knows what they're wrestling with, those scribes. They're wrestling with the fact that, does he have the authority to do this? Can he do this? Is he blaspheming? And so Jesus says, so that you may know 
that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he says to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and walk. And this word authority, we've already seen it. We see that he speaks with authority. And now what we're seeing here is that he has the authority even to, do, uh, to heal a paralyzed man because to, to prove that he can, he can forgive sins. He's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a word that, that teaches about power. Jesus is saying, I have the power to choose. I have the power to choose whether or not this man remains paralyzed. And I have the power to choose whether or not this man remains condemned. And so he's using this power that he's been given by God the Father to forgive this man. And the proof is that he will see heals him. Now, so this word authority to forgive What's interesting about this word forgive that we see here uh, several times in this passage is it is a word, a Greek word that we've already seen four times in Mark's gospel. Now, we have, we're not very far along, so you could scan and see that we haven't seen the word forgive yet, uh, but we've seen what, what, what we don't realize is we have seen this Greek word. It's a word that is translated differently depending on how it's being used. And when we look at all the ways that it can be used, what forgiveness is shines forth. It's amazing. So look at this with me. If you have your, keep your Bibles open, should be on 165 there or 1065. Just the next page over is still chapter one. So look at this. Look at, uh, Mark 118. One of the ways that this word is used is when someone or something is leaving somewhere to go elsewhere. Okay, so Mark used this word in Mark 118 and 120, and we translate it as the word left. Mark 118, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. Mark 120, and immediately he called them, and they left their father and, uh, in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So you can see that same Greek word is used to mean when someone leaves somewhere to go elsewhere, to go someplace else. Okay, now... It also is used when you're talking about something being sent away. Passively being sent away. Okay, look at this in Mark 131. It says, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. So Pastor Michael preached on that a few weeks ago. And that word is the same word that we also translate as forgiveness. And Jesus, when he touched her, was sending away this fever. Okay, gets even better. Look at this. It has to do with permission. Look at 134, Mark 134. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Isn't that amazing? Same word has to do with permission. And then also, obviously, it is very often translated to mean forgiveness which we see in uh, verse 5 and 7 and 9 and 10 here, uh, particularly verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. So you put that together. We look at all the ways that Mark has already used this word and the, the uses will continue in his gospel and also in Matthew and Luke. They use the word the same way. And look at this. This means that forgiveness is when God grants permission for our sin to be sent away from us to go elsewhere. And obviously that is on to Jesus. Forgiveness is when God grants permission for our sins to be sent away from us in order to go 
elsewhere. Think about that. Imagine that. When we think about forgiveness, don't simply think, well, God, just let it go. No, it is not. That's not the way it is. God is granting permission. Christ looks at us, you and me, just like that paralytic and says your sins are forgiven. And what he's saying is that God has granted permission. He has granted permission for those sins that we've committed to leave us and go on to him. Visualize that. I mean, think of, imagine the, you know, you think about the sin that you've committed. Think about things that you, you hate that you've done. You wish you'd never done. You wish you could forget. And you have to see those things. See that sin. Jesus has, has looked at you and me if we have faith and he has given permission for those sins to leave us and go to him so that he could pay for them on the cross. And then the resurrection is the proof that those sins have been paid for in full and that we will never be punished for them and that God is no longer holding Holding them against us. This is what we're celebrating when we celebrate Christmas. That Jesus came into the world to live this perfect life and then give permission for our sins to leave us, to go to him so that he could be punished for them on the cross. And this is why the, the scribes are so frustrated here. See, they, uh, the way Jesus worded this, Uh, The scholars look at this and they realize that he carefully worded it in a way where the scribes at least would have known that he was speaking as God. So you can when we read this in English, it looks uh, sort of like he's just saying your sins are forgiven. Perhaps maybe he's just declaring the fact that God has forgiven him of his sins. But notice how the Pharisees or I'm sorry, the scribes react. They get mad. They're saying who can forgive sins but God alone, because the way he's saying it, he's acting like he's God. And the good news is that he is. And so that's why they get upset with him. They're frustrated. Wait a minute. He's talking like he thinks he's God. Is this blasphemy? And they're getting upset and they're frustrated. And the the reality is they're, they're going up against this reality that only Jesus has the authority regarding forgiveness. That's their problem. They're uncomfortable with the idea that only Jesus has the authority regarding forgiveness. And before we get too judgmental about these scribes, I'll tell you what. Uh, we do too. We struggle with this. We struggle with the fact that Jesus Christ is the only one with authority regarding forgiveness. Uh, for, for our non-believing friends, the struggle is that maybe do we really need forgiveness or, or is Jesus really the only way? And one of the things about this passage that's so powerful here is we see if, if, if any of us are struggling with whether or not Jesus really is the only way, it's a heart issue. It's not actually a logical thing it's, that, that's going to help you understand. It's a heart issue. It requires faith. That's why twice in this passage it's referred to the heart. Jesus says you're questioning these things in your heart. The heart's being sort of the seat of all physical and emotional being. It's uh, the Greek word cardias. It's where we get the cardiac arrest. It's where we get that word. And so and those of you who are struggling with whether or not Jesus is who he says he is, I'll tell you what, the only way to know is by faith. The only way to know is to believe that he is, and then you will see it. He will prove to you that he is who he says he is. Nobody's going to be able to uh, argue you into this with logic or something like that. It's a heart issue. You're going to have to go on faith. Now, those of us who have gone on faith, who have put our faith in Christ, we struggle too. We struggle because uh, Jesus here we see is the only one with authority regarding forgiveness. And if you're like me, occasionally we have real trouble forgiving other people. 
And we'll, we'll talk about that a lot more when we come to chapter 11, where Jesus tells us to forgive anyone who we have anything against. That's coming. But I want you to think about this. Um, the, you know, when we think about forgiveness, very often we have trouble forgiving ourselves. And I've heard people say, and I have said, uh, I'm glad God forgives me, but I don't think I can forgive myself. If I asked you to raise your hand, if you were struggling to forgive yourself with something, I know that many of you would raise your hand and the rest of you would be lying. Okay, I'm not going to do that. Don't worry, you don't have to raise your hand. But you would be amazed at how many times I hear this out of my own mouth and out of the mouths of the people in our church. We struggle to forgive ourselves. Now, here's the thing. Here's what's so powerful about this passage. There is only one person with authority regarding forgiveness of sins, and it's not you. Which means, listen to this, you don't have the authority to withhold forgiveness from yourself. You don't have the authority to to continue to hang on to those sins, to feel that guilt and to feel that shame and to to suffer. You actually don't have the authority to do that. You're breaking the rules. Isn't this amazing? The only one with authority to keep our sins on us is Jesus, the one who has given them permission to to be removed from us. And so what we need to do when we start feeling like, "I, I hate that I've done that, I'll never forgive myself for that, we need to speak to ourselves and say, hold on, you don't have the authority to do that. You're not the authority when it comes to forgiveness. You can't withhold forgiveness from yourself. It's like uh, it's like we're you know if you're a criminal uh, and, and you go to court and maybe some local court you just did some local crime you go to court you're standing there and uh, the judge says that you're guilty a jury says that you're guilty you're standing there guilty but they're about to and they're about to come and take you away and put you in prison and then uh, the president of the United States walks in and he says I can do this cool thing it's called the presidential pardon uh, you're pardoned you can go free in that moment no matter what you say even if you're like no no president I'm going to go to jail for this that's what's right I want to do that you know put me in cuffs take me away no matter what you say the president can say sorry higher authority go free And what we're seeing here is that Jesus is the ultimate authority. He is the ultimate authority over all things. And with his authority, with his power to choose who is forgiven, if you have faith, he has chosen for your sins to be sent away, go someplace else, namely onto himself, onto the cross. You have no more authority over your own forgiveness than the paralytic had over his own paralysis. And just as Jesus overruled the man's paralysis, he has overruled the sin that's been holding you and me down in guilt and shame. And so what do we do? How, what do, we do? How, do you, how do you forgive yourself? You obey Christ. You submit to his authority and, and believe that you are forgiven, that the only one with authority has chosen to forgive you. And we listen to his voice through the word of God, through the Holy Spirit speaking to us, saying, spiritually speaking, get up, take your bed and go. We don't have to be weighed down by this guilt. We don't have the authority to hang on to it anymore. Believe that the one with the authority regarding forgiveness has granted permission for your sin to be sent away to go somewhere else, namely onto him and onto the cross. And just like the man's paralysis left him and went somewhere else, where did his paralysis go? On the cross, Jesus could not move his arms. He could not move his legs. He took it. 
just like he's taken all of our sin. He took the man's paralysis so that he could go free. And he's taken all of our sin so that you and I can get up and take our bed and go free. Be free of your guilt and shame. Hear God speaking that to you, not me. It's God through this text saying, be free. If you have faith, be free of your sin and guilt. And that just leaves us with the glory of God. If we've talked about his, uh, the, a faith we can see, which we know, if we, if we have faith, we have forgiveness, and we've talked about the only person with authority, which means we can't even try to hang on to our guilt, all that leaves us with is looking at the glory of God. Look at verse 12. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So beautiful, so powerful. When we embrace our forgiveness, the world takes notice and God is glorified. We live in a world where people are walking around with guilt and shame and they do not know what to do with it and they try all sorts of different things, worldviews, false religions, alcohol, you name it, trying to get power, trying to get this, trying to get that, trying to get control of things. They try so many things trying to deal with their guilt and shame. And when we walk free, They take notice, and Jesus uses that to draw people to himself. They say, we've never seen anything like this. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we do struggle to, to forgive ourselves, and thank you that you've given us no authority to do that. Would you help us to hear your voice when... We hear the voice of the evil one accusing us when we hear our own voice, remembering things that we've done. Would you help us to hear your voice, Lord Jesus, who has looked at each one of us and has said our sins are forgiven. Help us to live in that joy that people would see it and that they would even be drawn to you. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.